Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Russia today striking awfully close to a NATO ally. The lead starts right now. Smoke fills the sky from Russian attacks in Lviv in western Ukraine, hitting just 43 miles from the Polish border, where American troops are currently deployed, and these Russian strikes close to Poland are intensifying. Then, walking a diplomatic tightrope, President Biden talks to the president of China, as that country considers sending military and financial aid to Russia. Plus, for one Ukrainian fighting to save his country, it isn't dying that scares him, it's losing his country to the Russians. CNN talks to members of the Ukrainian military today on The Lead. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start with our world lead and renewed attempts at diplomacy today as Russian forces expand their military strikes further across Ukraine. The White House just released this photo of President Biden's nearly two-hour call with Chinese President Xi Jinping today. White House officials saying President Biden warned Xi Jinping of the, quote, implications and consequences if the Chinese government were to send aid to support Russia's war on Ukraine. Dense smoke filled the skies in the western Ukrainian city of Lviv today. Ukraine's military says Russian warplanes fired six missiles. Ukrainian defense systems were able to intercept two of them. The others appeared to have hit an aircraft repair plant. Lviv is fewer than 50 miles from the border with Poland. Poland, obviously a NATO ally where U.S. forces are currently deployed. Lviv has been relatively untouched by Russian attacks until today. Also in Lviv today, this incredibly moving reminder of the devastating human toll of Putin's war on the Ukrainian people. Strollers set out in the city's central square today. Each stroller symbolizing a Ukrainian child who has been reported killed in the Russian attack so far. 109 children by the latest Ukrainian government count. And in the capital of Kyiv, Ukraine's emergency services saying today that at least one person was killed and four others injured when a downed rocket landed on a residential apartment building and started a fire. Let's get straight to CNN's Sam Kiley, who is live for us in the capital city of Kyiv. And Sam, your team heard more explosions around Kyiv today. You visited some of the destruction. What can you tell us about these latest attacks? Well, Jake, it's become an almost daily pattern, excuse me, going out in the mornings for people to uh, survey the damage, usually from uh, airstrikes or missile strikes in the early hours or small hours of the morning. This strike, though, was at eight o'clock in the morning, and it was a big one Uh, on the ground, really devastating uh, amount of damage. I had to say, I've seen a lot of this kind of thing in the past, and this was uh, very much at the top end of, of the size of explosion from a single piece of ordnance. It blew away an entire side of a building, destroying four, four flats were simply brought down, turned into rubble. It shattered vehicles, turning them inside out almost. Uh, it was very close to a kindergarten and close to a school, uh, both of which mercifully were empty. Uh, And the miracle of this whole event is that uh, one person was killed. It could have been so much better. There were huge numbers of flats 
uh, destroyed around that area. I actually spoke to one uh, woman who was in the same block that was was most heavily damaged, and she said that she'd been uh, almost knocked out of bed by the blast, but protected by a large cupboard in her room. It's the it, those are the sort of details. The little the difference between torn to pieces by flying shrapnel and glass and surviving entirely intact could be whether or not you're sleeping near a cupboard, uh, Jake. But this was a, a, a targeted missile, uh, a cruise-type missile with a very big warhead. Normally, when they're shot down, the warhead is destroyed in the sky. But clearly, this warhead, which was intended for some other target, we don't know whether it would have been civilian or military because the Russians have used these kinds of weapons, particularly in Mariupol, against civilian targets, notably the theater and indeed the maternity hospital strikes that we've seen in the last 10 days. But nonetheless, this can't be blamed in terms of targeting of civilian areas because it was actually shot down by the air defenses uh, of Kyiv, which are uh, still operating tonight. We've heard a number of de detonations which often indicate that they're firing the S-300s at whatever targets are coming in to the capital, Jake. And Sam, U Ukrainian officials just gave a, an update on attempts by the Ukrainians to defend Kyiv. Uh, what they have to say? You know, this was quite a remarkable set of statements and claims made by the defense ministry here, by the deputy chief of staff. The Ukrainians are not the Russians. They don't uh, tend to come out with completely uh, fantastical claims. So, uh, but we have no uh, uh, way of verifying some of this except for our own eyes. Now, uh, in the last uh, three days, I would say, including the 36-hour period in which everybody was not allowed on the streets at all, it would appear to confirm that the Ukrainians have gone on a counterattack around the capital city. They claim to have had considerable success pushing the Russians back, they claim, in the southwest of the city through uh, Borisopol uh, and also over on the right bank in the east of the city. They say they push the Russians back there 70 kilometers, about 50 miles. That would be a very substantial success. They're essentially saying that at the moment, Kyiv is much safer than it was a week ago, Jake. All right, Sam Kiley, live for us in Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you. Please stay safe. Top U.S. officials say they're worried that the Chinese government could soon send military or financial aid to Russia to help Putin's war on Ukraine and the Ukrainian people. The Biden administration has already promised to punish China if it does. A warning President Biden repeated during a call with China's President Xi Jinping this morning, according to the White House. CNN's Kaylin Collins reports now from the White House on what else the two leaders discussed in their nearly two-hour discussion today. For an hour and 50 minutes today, President Biden spoke to Chinese President Xi Jinping as he seeks to deter him from bailing out Russia. China needs to stand on the right side of history. Uh, it needs to ensure that it does not backfill uh, financially or in any other way sanctions that have been imposed upon Russia. He also uh, conveyed uh, and, and described the implications and consequences if China provides material support to Russia. Biden hoping to persuade the Chinese leader to distance himself from President Putin and find out whether China plans to answer Russia's request for desperately needed military equipment. What's critical now is for every nation all over the world to call on Vladimir Putin to end this horrendous war of choice, this war of carnage. That's where we are. China has refused to call the invasion an invasion or condemn Putin for brutalizing a sovereign country. Today, Biden warned Xi of the implications and consequences if China provides material support to Russia as it conducts brutal attacks against Ukrainian cities and civilians. 
Chinese state media says President Xi told President Biden that conflict isn't in anyone's interest and, quote, the Ukraine crisis is something we don't want to see. The critical conversation coming as top U.S. officials are warning that Russia is spreading more lies, including ones that have been amplified by Chinese state media. This meeting and these lies are designed for one purpose and one purpose alone, deflect responsibility for Russia's war of choice and the humanitarian catastrophe it has caused. As the U.S. plans to send 800 million more dollars in military aid to Ukraine, Russia's foreign minister is claiming they'll view any shipments of weapons as a, quote, legitimate target. Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov says that Russia will view any weapons shipments into Ukraine as, quote, legitimate targets. What is the president's response to that comment? Well, that's a threat that he has uh, made before. We will watch closely if they follow up on that threat. As the U.S. tries to increase the pressure on Putin, top officials are making clear their goal is not to oust him from office. Does the United States support regime change in Russia? That is not uh, what we are about. We are not. This is a decision for the people of Russia. Now, Jake, despite the fact that President Biden spoke to President Xi for nearly two hours this morning, the White House says they are still concerned that China might answer that request from Russia for more military equipment and say they'll be watching closely to see what China does going forward. We have that concern. The president detailed, um, uh, you know, what the implications and consequences would be if China provides material support to Russia um, as it conducts brutal attacks against Ukrainian cities and civilians. And obviously that is something we will be watching and the world will be watching. So that concern hasn't gone away following the call. Obviously, actions are a key part of what we'll be watching. And Jake, one other thing to note, we asked the White House if President Xi referred to this as an invasion during this call with President Biden, given so far he has not called it one publicly. They declined to say, Jake. All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House, thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss Senator Ben Cardin of Maryland. He's on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Senator, thanks so much for joining us. You just heard Press Secretary Jen Psaki say, even after that nearly two-hour call between President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping, that the White House remains concerned that China is going to help Russia in its war on Ukraine, either economically or militarily. Do you think China is going to actually do that? Well, Jake, first, it's good to be with you. I I think President Biden underscored the point uh, that China needs to be on the right side of history. Any country that assists Mr. Putin in what he's doing has accountability for these atrocities. And I think President Biden made that very clear. I would hope that China wants to be on the right side here. Uh, The unprovoked attack by Mr. Putin, any support of that uh, will cause uh, consequences and accountability. You know, I I just wonder, Chinese is an uh, oppressive autocracy. They're currently, according to the U.S. State Department, committing uh, cultural uh, genocide of of the Uyghur Muslim minority population. What, What makes anyone think the Chinese government would care about what side of history they're on? You know, China does not share our values. We recognize that. Their leadership does not share that, and that's, that's disappointing. But we would hope that their leadership would understand the importance of respecting the sovereignty of a state, and that what Mr. Putin is doing violates every international norm in regards to sovereignty. And China, I believe, believes in, in, that we need to respect the sovereignty of its own country and of other countries. So I would hope that uh, the, the leadership would, would recognize that Mr. Putin crossed a line that no one wants to be on what he's doing on and facilitating what he's doing.
when when explain to our viewers why they would think that China, considering what it has done in Tibet and Hong Kong and Taiwan, why China would have any sort of belief in sovereignty for another country, considering how they behave uh, when it comes to co- uh, territories, countries that don't want to be Chinese, but are being forced to be. Well, you, you, you raise a very valid point, but recognize that China's territorial disputes relate to what they believe is legitimately their country through either the the rights uh, of sea or through the historic relationship between Taiwan and mainland China. The issue concerning their domestic population are areas that we believe violate international norms, but they're certainly not sovereignty issues. So I think the sovereignty of a country, even for China, what Russia has done has gone too far. Uh, and we hope they understand that. Uh, that. You know, what Mr. Putin did is, is unprecedented, it's unprovoked attack against a sovereign nation that was peaceful. Uh, I would not think that any a legitimate government would want to support that action. President Zelensky addressed Western leaders in a speech today saying, quote, we shall call even louder on certain Western leaders and remind them that this will be their moral defeat if Ukraine does not receive the advanced weapons that will save the lives of thousands of our people, unquote. Note there, he's not saying that about the U.S. Uh, maintaining a, a no-fly zone. He's talking about, you know, he seems to have lowered the, his request um, to within where leaders might consider it to be more practical and pragmatic. Is the U.S., is President Biden doing enough to help right now? Should Biden be facilitating Poland's push to get Ukraine, these uh, MiG jet fighters? First, let me tell you, President Zelensky's message to the members of Congress and to the American people in the world, uh, what a powerful message. What an incredible leader. I think we all have the utmost respect for his courage and his leadership Yes, the, uh, President Biden has delivered. He's delivered defensive weapons that have allowed Ukraine to defend itself. He's delivered the toughest sanctions that are really crippling Mr. Putin and the Russian economy. And more importantly, he's delivered international support, unity globally under the leadership of President Biden. And now we're providing humanitarian assistance in, in Ukraine and in regards to the refugees. What Mr. Zelensky wants is more, and we all want more. And he wants us to have a staying power. So the House of Representatives passed an important bill yesterday that dealt with trade issues and uh, and the global Magnitsky to the enablers in addition to those who commit these atrocities. We want to see that done. President Biden supports that. So I think we need to do more. We got to stay resolved. But President Biden has provided the leadership that has allowed Ukraine to be able to defend itself and has organized unity among the global community. Democratic Senator Ben Cardin of Maryland, thanks so much for your time today. Coming up next, as Russia hammers southern Ukraine, what happens to the innocent people who cannot leave? Plus, what's it like to face the Russian army? CNN talks with a Ukrainian fighter who says death is not scary. Losing Ukraine is. In our world, lead remarkable images from southern Ukraine today. Eerily quiet streets in the city of Odessa As that town braces for a looming battle, a looming attack by the Russians, street signs taped and covered, presumably to confuse invading Russian soldiers. Residents have even barricaded off access to the local opera house. Nick Payton Walsh joins us now live from Nikola uh, to the east of Odessa. Nick, Odessa, obviously a crucial target for the Russians. Uh, What is it like there right now? 
Yeah, I mean, to be honest, when we left this morning, it is a city really bracing, potentially for the worst. Constant reports of Russian ships off the coast, of Russian jets being downed, of shelling off its coast. None of that immediately seems to impact the kind of eerie images you're showing now of what the city centre, that should be bustling, frankly, even in a freezing cold march uh, with ordinary people and instead deserted with tank traps. But whether or not Odessa sees a Russian military invasion is essentially informed by what's happening here in Mykolaiv, where I'm standing, to its east. This is where the big standoff has happened against Russian forces that have taken Kherson further to the east along the Black Sea coast. It's here where we seem to be seeing Ukrainian forces pushing back to some degree. Today we were on the main road from here down to Kherson, and we saw how a lot of the villages there are now under Ukrainian control, who are pushing Russian forces back towards their more fortified positions, closer towards Kherson's airport, where we know for a fact there have been some significant Ukrainian strikes against Russian armour. Whether or not Ukraine can push down towards Kherson is a key uh, question, frankly, because it was the first city to fall to Russia, and for Ukraine to re-establish a foothold, even outside of it, would be a significant move. But... As we've seen time and time again, Jake, when Russia seems to lose ground strategically, it responds with massive brute force. And there was no exception this morning. Uh, Voznesensk, a key town to the north of where I'm standing, hit by a missile strike that appears to have hit an arms depot, according to the mayor there, and much closer to where I'm standing. We're still trying to learn the details here. But another, it seems, missile strike hitting a military base here, close city of Mykolaiv. I think it's fair to say significant numbers of injured, certainly uh, from that. But it just really shows whatever gains are made by Ukraine's forces on the ground, hard fought as they are, the response is brutal and massive uh, from Russian long distance missiles, Jake. McPayton Walsh, thank you so much. Please stay safe. Turning to the front lines in central Ukraine and Russia's wavering military dominance. A top American general says Russia's rank and file do not appear to be, quote, particularly motivated Today, CNN's Ivan Watson sat down with a major in Ukraine's territorial defense forces. And despite some cracked ribs from a combat mission, the major seems to be a prime example of Ukraine's unbroken resolve. It's not so scary to die. It's much more scary to lose. When we met the second army in the world by statistic. Uh, we expected more professionals, we expected more aggressive and uh, more strong fighting. Your battalion filmed this. It's uh, hitting in uh, Russian tanks. And that's hit by Ukrainian artillery. Artillery, yes. Drone footage that CNN cannot independently verify from battlefields northwest of Kyiv filmed by a battalion of Ukraine's Territorial Defense Force, commanded by Major Sergei Tamarin. Has your battalion had casualties? Yes, yes. People killed, people wounded? Yes, I prefer not to tell the number of people, but we have, I, I already lost my friends and people who serve with me. We have uh, people who wounded. What is the weapon that is hurting your men? The most um, dangerous is artillery. Tamarin is a veteran of the long war against Russian-backed separatists in Ukraine's southeastern Donbass region. 
He re-enlisted along with most of his battalion of nearly 400 after Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th. He calls his strategy aggressive resistance. Just um, separating four small troops, not more than 10 people, with a few grenade launchers and uh, some kind of um, uh, clean-up group with rifles and machine guns. I can't say that uh, Russian army, regular army, infantry groups uh, fight well. They even have um, uh, food packs, which is expired a few years ago. So they don't have normal food, they don't have even water. Your battalion, how many armored vehicles, tanks, do you think you've destroyed? Right now, um, more than 20, it's not only tanks, it's like uh, tanks and other armored vehicles. Does your battalion have an estimate for how many Russians they killed? For now, we destroy almost uh, 200 Russians, uh, captured alive closer to six or eight soldiers. Tamarin is recovering from injuries sustained during a combat operation. Our car is uh, fall down from the bridge, which was blown up. Half of my ribs are broken. He says his men have started to receive some foreign weapons, shoulder-fired missiles, and he's confident Ukraine will have victory, but at a terrible price. The price which pay Ukraine right now is... Uh, I think impossible. It's it's some kind of whole na sacrifice of all nation. Ivan Watson, CNN, Venezia, Ukraine. And our thanks to Ivan Watson for that report. Coming up next, CNN's Don Lemon sat down exclusively with the Secretary of Defense while General Austin was in Eastern Europe. Secretary Lloyd Austin's assessment of the Russian army, CNN exclusive. That's next. In our Worldly Today, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin telling CNN's Don Lemon in a new exclusive interview that Russia has made a number of missteps in its invasion of Ukraine. The assessment comes as the Pentagon chief was in Bulgaria meeting with U.S. and NATO troops ahead of the president's visit to Brussels for a NATO meeting next week. Let's get right to CNN's Don Lemon, who sat down with the defense secretary earlier today. And Don, Secretary Austin told you that Russia seems to have been struggling with logistics and they're coping with low troop morale. Yeah, Jake, it was uh, surprising to hear, you know, at least very interesting, I should say, to hear the Secretary of Defense of the United States criticizing the much vaunted Russian military, basically saying that their hearts aren't in it, that they were incompetent in many ways. And, um, and that's why they are really resulting to the sort of rudimentary form uh, of war. I also spoke to him about China getting involved. As you know, the president of the United States speaking with Xi Jinping earlier today and saying that he supports a diplomatic path to getting out of this. And I asked Lloyd Austin, what happens if China gets involved? Should they stay out of it? Here's what he had to say about all of it. What is your assessment of, of Russian forces now? Are they stalled? Are they regrouping so that they can increase uh, their assault or increase their violence on Ukraine? What's your assessment of the Russian military? Well, it's hard to tell, Don. I think, uh, you know, they, they have not progressed as far as quickly as they would have liked to. Uh, they, I think they envisioned that they would move rapidly and very quickly uh, seize uh, uh, the capital city. They've not been able to do that. 
Uh, they've struggled with uh, uh, logistics, so we've seen a number of missteps uh, along the way. I don't see, uh, um, you know, evidence of good employment of uh, tactical uh, intelligence. I don't see integration of, uh, uh, you know, air capability with the ground uh, ground maneuver. And so there are a number of things that we would expect to have seen that, that we just haven't seen. And the Russians really have had some, that's presented them some problems. So many of their assumptions uh, have not uh, have not proven to be true as they, as they entered this fight. Uh, so uh, The president is speaking um, with Xi Jinping, um, and it, it, we are getting reporting that that, that Russia has been asking China uh, for drones and for help. What happens, do you think China will stay out of this and what happens if they don't? Well, again, uh, don't want to speculate or get invo involved in hypotheticals. Uh, I, would, uh, I would hope that China would, uh, would not support this uh, uh, despicable act by, uh, by Putin. I would hope that uh, uh, they, would, uh, they would recognize uh, uh, a need to uh, to respect sovereign territory, and uh, and so uh, hard to say what what they will do, but uh, you know we we've been clear that if 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 they do that, we you know we think that's a bad choice. And of course, the top priority for the United States and for NATO is really not to get involved in a direct conflict with Russia. The the secretary spoke about that. And Jake, he also talked about the possible use of nuclear uh, and chemical weapons. And he said, listen, the United States, NATO, they are dedicated to uh, keeping uh, Article 5. They are dedicated to Article 5. And if, any, and if Russia attacks uh, a NATO nation, that means an attack on all. An attack on one is an attack on all. And they said they will, he said they will do whatever it takes uh, to combat that if that does happen. So... I think the number one priority or big priority is not to get involved directly with Russia. But if there is an attack on a NATO nation, who knows where that can go, Jake? Yeah. Don Lemon, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Uh, uh, and you, you can watch Don's full interview with the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin. That's tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. On Don Lemon tonight, 10 p.m. Eastern. Coming up, at what point does Putin's invasion of Ukraine and the massacre of the Ukrainian people, at what point does that constitute genocide? Our next guest was the U.S. Ambassador at Large for War Crimes. Stay with us. In our world lead, a blatant shift on the subject of war crimes. From this statement from White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki two weeks ago. Is it now the position of the U.S. government that Putin has engaged in war crimes? That's an ongoing process. We have not made conclusions. To this statement from Secretary of State Antony Blinken just yesterday. Yesterday, President Biden said that, in his opinion, war crimes have been committed in Ukraine. Personally, I agree. Let's get right to former U.S. Ambassador at Large for War Crimes Issues, David Sheffer. David, uh, Mr. Ambassador, good to see you. You're also a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and the president of the Council, Richard Haas, tweeted yesterday, quote, enough with all the talk about war criminals and reparations. The focus for now and immediate future needs to be on stopping the carnage and on negotiating peace. We can then turn to other things, unquote. I know the CFR has a diversity of viewpoints. You're certainly allowed to disagree with Richard Haas. You've been vocal about calling out Putin's war crimes. What do you make of Haas's argument that now isn't the right time because we need to have a diplomatic off-ramp for Putin? 
Well, I would disagree, but I, I do understand the emphasis that he's putting on what the major priority is, which is to stop the atrocity crimes from occurring, to stop the aggression, and to push back the, the Russian forces so that the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine are restored and, frankly, the civilian population saved. So that is the highest priority. But as these things are occurring, it's, it's inevitable that the identity, the, the description of them is going to be a paramount concern. And frankly, the victims themselves seek justice. They want accountability. And so getting it right as to what kind of criminal conduct is taking place and describing it as such is very important. And I must say, it's very important for governments to finally get there and, and call it out. We made a mistake in 1994 in the Clinton administration when it took us two months to describe the, the slaughter of Tutsis in Rwanda as genocide. And we were severely criticized for that and, and really it tarnished our reputation for a while until we could sort of claw back from that. So I think it's very, very important and, and useful that President Biden and Secretary of State Blinken have made the statements that they've made. Another question that, that I, I wonder about is, given all of the civilians that are at this point, you know, as, at this point, it's just too many incidents for it to be a coincidence that civilians just happen to be killed. And we know the Putin playbook. At what point does this become a genocide that Putin is trying to kill as many Ukrainian civilians as possible and it technically would be considered by the international community to be a genocide. Well, first, it's going to be easier at this stage to prosecute war crimes and crimes against humanity. But when you get to genocide, you have to establish the specific intent of leaders to literally destroy all or a substantial part of a protected group. And in this case, it would be the national Ukrainian citizens. Now, as this conflict perpetuate uh, continues, you're going to get closer and closer to that line of, of whether or not this really is an attempt to destroy, uh, namely eliminate, a substantial part of the Ukrainian population. And that's, you know, that'll, that'll be determined as we go along. But remember, genocide is not just killing. It's also imposing upon that protected group bodily injury, mental harm, creating conditions of life that are so inhumane that they, they completely debilitate that population as a protected group, as a population. And it's getting close to some of those red lines in Ukraine. So um, I, I would suggest the Russian leadership has to be very, very careful that they understand that there are red lines and they can get close to them and even pass them when it comes to genocide. The U.S. is diplomatically supporting the International Criminal Court. That's the main forum for prosecuting war criminals. But the U.S. does not officially recognize the court. You told WNYC Radio that the U.S. declined to join under President George W. Bush because the Bush administration was preparing to go to war in Iraq. Do you think President Biden should push for the U.S. to join the International Criminal Court? And would that make any difference when it comes to prosecuting Putin? Well, I, I don't think it would make a difference in terms of prosecuting Putin, but I do think that the first step the Biden administration could take would be simply to reaffirm the fact that we did sign the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court and we stand by that signature. 
Namely, we will not do anything now to try to undermine the International Criminal Court, which was the objective under the Trump administration to literally undermine it. That should no longer be the objective of the United States, and I know it is not under the Biden administration. Beyond that, of course, we want to provide as much support as we can to the objectives of the ICC in its investigations, and we can provide that kind of support. And during the Obama administration, we provided assistance in actually tracking and capturing certain indicted fugitives of the ICC and making sure that they arrived in The Hague. So those steps can take place. But I think the first uh, thing we could do in Washington, uh, Jake, frankly, is to press forward with a Crimes Against Humanity bill that would make it possible for our federal courts to prosecute crimes against humanity, which are happening big time in Ukraine right now, and reach, uh, reach the level where we can have some jurisdiction over Russian uh, generals and, and political leaders who are involved in that and bring them into our federal courts if necessary if we gain you know, personal jurisdiction over them. Hmm. Ambassador David Sheffer, thank you so much for your time today, sir. Appreciate it. Coming up, how worrying is this new COVID subvariant? Will adults need another booster shot? Stick around for a checkup with Dr. Sanjay Gupta. That's next. And our health lead today is the fourth time the charm, Moderna, now joining Pfizer in seeking emergency use authorization for an additional COVID booster shot. But unlike Pfizer, which is only seeking another dose for people over 65, Moderna wants a fourth shot for every adult. Let's discuss with CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, who we're lucky enough to have in studio today. Good to see you, Sanjay. So why are Moderna and Pfizer approaching a second booster shot, a fourth shot total, so differently? Do you think Pfizer is going to end up amending their emergency use authorization request to make it fourth shot for every adult? They might, or it could be the reverse, which is that Moderna is basically saying, hey, let's, let's ask for everything and basically leave it up to the FDA to make a more specific determination as to who should actually benefit from this fourth shot. They're both relying on the same data, and that data is from Israel. And for the most part, the data showed that people under the age of 60 or so weren't getting a significant benefit in terms of preventing severe illness. What they seem to be doing is raising their antibody levels to where they were after the third shot. So antibody levels wane, bringing them back up. So it wasn't sort of turbo boosting the amount of antibodies. And again, didn't seem to make a difference in terms of hospitalizations because they were, the three shots was doing a good job in terms of protecting them against that. So the big question really, I think, looking at this data is for people 60 or 65 and older and determining specifically, does this actually reduce the likelihood of hospitalization? There's some data circulating now in the United States, if you look at Omicron here, which basically shows that people who've been unvaccinated versus fully vaccinated, the unvaccinated are four times more likely to be hospitalized, 12 times versus people who've been boosted. You asked me about this yesterday, Jake, in terms of vaccinated versus unvaccinated breakdown. Mm -hmm. That's a little bit of an example of how effective just the three shots are. So we're seeing this, uh, these cases of the BA2 subvariant of Omicron. Uh, they're rising in Europe. Dr. Fauci told me yesterday that they're not seeing an increase in the severity of the disease with this BA2 subvariant, um, but it is, uh, it, it is you know, highly infectious. What does that tell you as the subvariant grows in the U.S.? I think there's, there's two, two major points. I was looking at this data pretty carefully. First of all, they did not see an uptick in intensive care unit beds in the U.K., and I think that's what Dr. Fauci was sort of alluding to when he said there's not severe illness that seems to be going up. Hospitalizations have gone up around 17 percent, 
but they've gone up concomitantly at the same time as these cases. So what seems to be happening is you've got a very contagious virus. People are going to the hospital. They haven't been getting tested. They get tested now for the first time, and all of a sudden, no surprise, a lot of people have COVID that didn't know they had it. I think that's why you're seeing the hospitalization rates go up. The big difference, I think, right now is that in the U.K., you get about an 80% vaccination rate among adults. Here it's closer to 65%, I think, among eligible adults. So the higher vaccination rate may be protecting them. We're going to see an increase in cases, I think, almost assuredly. We may see a slight increase in hospitalizations because of our lower vaccination rates. But I think it's pretty clear that this is not causing as severe disease as we saw with Delta or Alpha before that. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. U.S. officials say Vladimir Putin is expected to take control of Ukraine in just a few days. But over three weeks after the invasion, Ukraine's holding back the Russian army. We're going to take a look at Russia's losses. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, what do the U.S. State Department, Ukrainian hackers, and Arnold Schwarzenegger all have in common? We'll tell you coming up. Plus... They escaped Russian brutality in Ukraine after their homes were destroyed. Now they're facing a new fight, the fight to cross from Mexico into the United States. And leading this hour with breaking news, President Biden wrapping up a call with Chinese leader, China's leader, trying to convince the Chinese government to not help Russia with their invasion of Ukraine. This is we get a look from above at the homes and other civilian targets destroyed by Russian strikes in Ukraine's capital city of Kiev. And in western Ukraine, smoke seen rising from outside the city of Lviv after Russian missiles hit just 43 miles from Poland, a NATO ally, where American troops are currently deployed. The city has been largely spared from Russia's military assault so far, Lviv. And CNN's Fred Pleitkin joins us now live from there. Fred, what do we know about this apparent new targeting of the city in which you're standing? Yeah, Jake, and you're absolutely right to say that this city is, of course, one that for the most part of this war has been fairly safe and also has been a place that many people have fled to from other parts of Ukraine because of the relative safety. But then, of course, uh, there are those times when you really notice very quickly that no place in this country is safe. And certainly uh, this city now also has been under attack as well. And all this happened in the early hours uh, of this morning. We're around 6.30 a.m. We heard the sirens go off here in the city, the air raid sirens. uh, And then uh, there were some booms a couple of minutes later. And what got hit was a plane maintenance factory outside of the city. It was actually right by Lviv Airport. Uh, the The damage there appears to be extensive. So far, we don't know anything about casualties. But what we do know from the Ukrainian military is they say that they believe that in total six cruise missiles were fired from Russian planes over the Black Sea. Two of those missiles were actually shot down by the Ukrainians, but four of them do appear to have hit their target. And again, uh, right now, Lviv, also a city that uh, has been fairly calm, but is now very much under fire. And all this, of course, also, Jake, comes as the Russians have said that they consider any sort of weapons deliveries by Western nations and especially the United States to Ukraine to be legitimate targets that they say they will target if they find them coming in, Jake. And Fred, new estimates suggest that thousands of Russian service members have been killed in Ukraine in in just the the last month. What does this tell us about Russia's actual military readiness? 
Well, I think it, it certainly shows that the Russians are having a lot of problems, both with their gear and with their soldiers, and certainly very much with their strategy uh, as well. And one of the things that we've heard from the Ukrainians today, which really is something that seems remarkable, is that they say now that they're pretty confident that they can hold the Russians off uh, in Kiev. They say the Russians are trying to pinch that city from two sides, but they say they're making absolutely no progress. And the Ukrainians themselves are launching counteroffensives, and that's not just in Kiev, but in other major battlefields as well. Here's what we're finding. Another blow to Vladimir Putin's military. Ukrainian forces claiming they ambushed this convoy of Russian airborne troops. While CNN cannot independently verify the information, Russian state TV for the first time acknowledged that a senior airborne commander and several soldiers have been killed. While still outgunned, the Ukrainians feel they might slowly be turning the tide. The armed forces of Ukraine continue to deliver devastating blows at groups of enemy troops who are trying to consolidate and hold the captured defensive lines, a Ukrainian army spokesman says. The Ukrainians say they are launching counterattacks against Russian troops. This video allegedly showing an anti-tank guided missile taking out a Russian armored vehicle. They also claim they've already killed more than 14,000 Russian troops and shot down more than 110 combat choppers. CNN can't confirm those numbers, but the Russians haven't updated their casualty figures in more than two weeks, instead claiming what they call their, quote, military special operation is going as planned. Russia's defense ministry released this video of helicopter gunships allegedly attacking a Ukrainian airfield. Still, Vladimir Putin clearly feels the need to rally his nation. Making a rare appearance at a massive rally at Moscow's main stadium, where a strange technical glitch cut off his speech, but not before he praised Russian troops. The best proof is the way our boys are fighting in this operation. Shoulder to shoulder, supporting each other, and if need be, protecting each other like brothers, shielding one another with their bodies on the battlefield. We haven't had this unity for a long time. But the Russians appear to be so angry at U.S. and allied weapons shipments to Ukraine, they vowed to target any deliveries entering Ukrainian territory. And they're hitting strategic targets as well, firing several cruise missiles at an airplane repair plant near Lviv. While a Russian cruise missile dropped on a residential building in the capital, Kiev, after being shot down by Ukrainian air defenses. Former world heavyweight boxing champ and brother of Kiev's mayor Vladimir Klitschko pleading for more help. This is genocide of the Ukrainian population. You have to act now. Stop passively observing and stop doing business with Russia. Do it now. The Biden administration has said more aid and weapons are on the way as Ukrainian forces continue to put up a fierce fight, preventing Russia's troops from further significant gains. And of course, Jake, we are now at the end of week three of this war that the Russians and Vladimir Putin have brought on here to Ukraine. If we uh, summarize what we've seen in those three weeks, it continues to be the case. The Russians have not managed to take any major population center here in this country. Mariupol continues to hold up. Kharkiv continues to hold up. Kiev continues to hold up. And the Ukrainians there are fighting back. The one thing, of course, that continues to happen is the Russians are continuing to pound a lot of those places with some really heavy and indiscriminate weaponry. And the civilians continue to bear the brunt of that Russian assault, Jake. Fred Pleitkin reporting for us live from Lviv. Thank you. Please stay safe. An indelible image from Lviv today 
a public square there filled with empty baby strollers, one for each of the 109 Ukrainian children killed so far, a number cited by Ukraine's president. My next guest is Tetyana Pachanchik. She's the head of the Ukrainian Human Rights Center, Zmina, and she joins us live from New York, where she's visiting the United Nations to try to gather international support for Ukraine. Tetyana, thanks for joining us. What goes through your mind when you see those strollers? These are most uh, tragic uh, days in the uh, life of uh, modern Ukraine that we are experiencing now. Uh, I uh, came from Ukraine several days ago to meet here uh, in the UN, different nations, and to tell them uh, what we are fixing on the ground. And we see that uh, Russia uses a tactic of mass terror and uh, uh, Russian army is committing numerous war crimes. And this is happening because their initial plan to conquer Ukraine with just within a few days uh, failed. So now the, their strategy is to terrify local population. And we document uh, a lot of deliberate, deliberate killings of civilians, including children and also destruction of the people's houses. They bomb hospitals, kindergartens, schools. There are mass cases of looting and robbery on the territories that were taken by them. They use civilians as shields. Uh, they, there are mass graves in the cities like Mariupol or Bucha near Kiev because people just cannot even or, uh, organize a funeral for the members of their family mm-hmm. under the constant shooting. So people are uh, buried in, in mass graves yeah. and this is, uh, this is very difficult to, to see all of this even for uh, for experienced human rights defenders, we were, we've been documenting uh, human rights abuses and war crimes in the occupied Crimea since uh, uh, during the last uh, eight years. But uh, even for us, it's very difficult to work with this nightmare. Yeah, I can't imagine. Three weeks ago, your, your entire country came under attack by Putin and the Russian military. You sent us some photos of you working while sheltering in a subway station then. You spent the night in an underground parking garage. Someone even set up a screen for kids to watch a movie while sheltering from the Russian airstrikes. How jarring has this experience been to your your personal life and, and your home? There is no even single place which is safe in Ukraine. Uh, you showed the pictures and video uh, from, from Lviv, from other cities from in, in the western part of Ukraine. Uh, several day, several uh, times a day, uh, we hear uh, the airstrike alarm, and we have to go to the shelters, uh, to metro stations, uh, uh, to basements, uh, and uh, uh, there is all the time Russian bombing. That's why uh, we think it's very important uh, to protect Ukraine from the sky. Uh, our whole nation is very united, uh, and we are withstanding Russian aggression for more than three weeks. During this time, they uh, managed; they didn't manage to occupy it, uh, big Ukrainian cities. They took only Kherson, and uh, we are uh, fighting them. But what we need is uh, just a protection from the sky, no-fly zone. And we talked a lot with different uh, countries. If they do not want to do it, what can they do uh, instead of it? Can they provide us planes? Can they provide us uh, uh, anti-airplane and anti-tank weaponry? Uh, We uh, are fighting uh, Putin's Russia uh, alongside with Belarus uh, alone. We are ready to do it. We just uh, uh, need equipment to continue our fight because we are protecting not only us, we protect all democratic countries in the world. 
All right, Tatiana Pachanchik, thank you so much. Uh, when you get back to Ukraine, we hope that you stay safe. And we're praying for the people of Ukraine. We're learning more about the consequences President Biden laid out to the Chinese president if China helps Russia in its war against Ukraine and the Ukrainian people. Also ahead, can the Terminator break through Russia's iron curtain of propaganda? Stay with us. In our world lead, a critical video conference that lasted nearly two hours, President Joe Biden and China's Xi Jinping discussing, for the first time since Russia's war against Ukraine broke out, what's at stake. But as CNN's David Culver reports for us now from Shanghai, the, the ties between China and Russia run rather deep, and they are seriously worrying U.S. officials. U.S. President Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping meeting virtually Friday morning to discuss Russia's war in Ukraine. According to Chinese state media, CCTV, Xi told Biden China and the U.S. have a responsibility to work for peace, saying, quote, the world is neither peaceful nor tranquil. The Ukraine crisis is something we don't want to see. These two governments have grown used to combating one another and have traded barbs as Russia's Vladimir Putin has rained misery on the people of Ukraine. China's already on the wrong side of history when it comes to, uh, to Ukraine and the aggression being committed by Russia. Uh, the fact that it has not stood strongly against it. The remarks by the U.S. are slandering and smearing against China. Such remarks are not helpful for solving the problem. The world's two biggest single economies may have the power to stop the suffering, but Biden needs Xi to set parameters for Putin. Tricky, since Xi once called Putin his best friend. The two leaders have met more than 30 times, and their countries have grown closer while becoming increasingly isolated from the West. Here, the pair are seen happily sampling a traditional Chinese pancake. A few months later, they remade the dish with vodka and caviar. And just a month ago, China praised its no-limits partnership with Russia at the Olympics U.S. officials boycotted. The U.S. worries that any economic or military support China sends to Russia has the potential to change the balance on the battlefield and could take the sting out of the Western sanctions currently crippling Russia's economy. The White House said Friday's discussion included the two leaders agreeing to maintain open lines of communication. China may see this as an opportunity to burnish its credentials as a major global player capable of stepping in and solving a geopolitical crisis. So neither are leaning towards Russia nor leaning towards Ukraine, and instead try to present itself as a neutral third party. As China's economy takes hits from a new wave of COVID-19, the worst since Wuhan 2020, economic blowback from the war in Ukraine is the last thing Beijing can afford. American officials have warned that China will pay a price if it does circumvent sanctions to do business with Russia or helps Putin militarily. China has to make a decision for themselves about where they want to stand uh, and how they want the history books to uh, look at them and view their actions. Uh, and uh, that is a decision for President Xi and the Chinese to make. President Biden right now hoping to get Xi to take on the role of peacemaker. Jake, interesting to compare the readouts from both sides. The U.S. stressing that this was mostly about Ukraine and Biden warning Xi of the consequences should China help Russia. Meantime, Chinese state media here is saying that Xi also brought up Taiwan, which China considers as part of its sovereignty. And Xi pointed out that China-U.S. relations, in his opinion, have not yet emerged from the predicament created by the previous U.S. administration. He, of course, is referring to former President Trump, Jake. All right, David Culver in Shanghai for us. Thank you so much. Also in our world lead, the Terminator has a new target, Russian disinformation. 
This is an illegal war. Your lives, your limbs, your futures are being sacrificed for a senseless war condemned by the entire world. Arnold Schwarzenegger is just one part of a wide cast of characters from digital activists in Ukraine to members of the U.S. State Department trying to circumvent Russian censorship and get the truth out about the war to the Russian people. Let's go straight to CNN's Kylie Atwood, live for us at the State Department. Kylie, explain what this wide effort to combat Russian disinformation looks like. Well, it's not any one actor or any one individual. It's not on any one platform or another. But it is a lot of different folks who are involved in this effort. And they are trying to uh, crowd the space on many different platforms. The U.S. government is involved. The State Department doing a number of things to try and reach Russians, to try and reach Russian speakers in Europe who may be talking to their relatives in Russia. One thing that they did days after uh, the war broke out was to set up a State Department account on Telegram. That's a messaging system that is used by Russians. And they're saying messages that we have heard from the Biden administration over the last few weeks, that this is Russia's war, that the Kremlin is putting out disinformation. But of course, they're saying it in a place where they think they could reach Russians. We're also seeing uh, individual hackers based in Ukraine and around the world try and get involved in this effort uh, to try and pierce this disinformation bubble that Putin has set up uh, around and within Russia. And then, of course, as you said, Arnold Schwarzenegger, individuals are getting involved here as well. And that video from him earlier this week uh, was quite something. It went on for about 10 minutes talking about his personal uh, love for Russia, for the Russian people, the trips that he has made there. But he also made it very clear that this is an illegal war. And he questioned why young Russian men would want to put their lives on the line uh, for such terror. And one State Department source uh, told you none of this is a silver bullet. So what is the U.S. up against in terms of Russia's wall of censor- censorship and the ability to, to permeate it so, so the Russian people hear what's really going on? Yeah, it's not easy. And you will hear uh, experts talk about the fact that more needs to be done. What the State Department has done uh, thus far is something, but the intelligence community could potentially get involved. We don't know if there are clandestine efforts, but there could be efforts of the like. And, And the problem here is that Russia is really cracking down on the information getting into the country. We know that Putin has banned Facebook they banned Twitter uh, recently, and Russians are using VPNs to try and get onto those websites. Uh, but we're also watching the fact that they are trying to also uh, tap into places from outside of the country. And I think it's important to note that some of these hackers have actually gone after Russian news outlets. And what they've done is hack onto those websites and provide information such as how many Russians have been killed during this war in Ukraine so that Russians who aren't actually using those VPNs to get on uh, websites from the outside are going to the websites that are state-backed and actually seeing some information because these hackers are getting through. Jake. Kylie Atwood at the State Department for us. Thank you so much. Let's discuss this with Republican Senator Mike Rounds of the great state of South Dakota. Uh, Senator Rounds sits on both the Senate Armed Services Committee and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Senator, uh, let's start with President Biden's call with China's Xi Jinping. According to the White House, the president laid out the consequences for China if it does end up supporting Russia's war on Ukraine with military or economic assistance. If that happens, if the Chinese help the Russians, what do you think the, the consequences should be for China? Well, first of all, China will do whatever they think is right for China. They're not going to be looking at it in terms of what's right for Russia or for us. 
or for Ukraine. So the message from the president needs to be one that says that you will suffer economic consequences. You will be separated from the rest of the world. We'll make it more difficult for you to trade. Uh, in other words, we will make it so that they feel it economically and more distance from otherwise their customers or the people that they want to do business with. Furthermore, we have the ability using our financial resources to separate them from the financial tools that they need in order to do those transactions. Those are all on the table, and I'm quite certain that the president laid those out uh, to uh, Xi Jinping today. Even after the phone call with President Xi, the White House remains concerned, worried that China is going to send the aid to Russia, economic or military. Is there anything more that President Biden should be doing now other than outlining these specific steps, as you just said? First thing that we need to do is to make sure that uh, the Ukrainians have all of the resources that they need. And that means releasing as many of the military supplies as we possibly can, the additional equipment, taking care of the humanitarian needs that we've got there, and making China look at this and say, I wonder what happens if we actually look at militarily going after Taiwan. That is something that China is looking at right now. They're following this as an experiment. They're watching to see how the West responds when you invade a country. China's gonna look at that and say, if we go after Taiwan, what are the consequences for us? Will Europe and the United States remain uh, united? Will the Western part, you know, will, will the West actually come after us the way that they come after uh, Russia? And what about Taiwan itself? Uh, are we making them strong right now so that China has to think twice about the cost militarily should they decide to aggressively go after Taiwan? In terms of the reporting we just heard from CNN's Kylie Atwood at the State Department, what do you make of these efforts from the State Department to try to combat Russian disinformation? Are they doing enough to try to break through Russia's censorship? Well, I, I can't speak so much for what the State Department is doing, but when she talks about the VPN and that availability, she's absolutely right in that respect. That is what the Russians are going to have to use in order to get some information. But this multitude of hackers that are out there right now in some very ingenious ways can get in and they can start breaking through and piercing through that shield that, that, that Putin has put up there. The other thing I can tell you is, is that we have very, very good capabilities uh, within the Department of Defense. And uh, it, when, when it comes to using uh, ways to break through in terms of internet connectivity, but once you use that tool, once you use it to get in and to do something with it, then they realize that you've got that tool. So you wanna be very sparing in using them and, and, and take them and use them only when you can really get a major win out of it or when it really does fit a long-term plan. You've been critical of the Biden administration for not getting resources to Ukrainians as quickly as possible. Are, are you satisfied with the White House's announcement this week of $800 million more, uh, including drones, anti-aircraft systems? Uh, are there other steps you'd like to see President Biden take here? There are more uh, in there's more dollars been committed right now. Uh, he can do more in terms of releasing more. Remember, if things don't go the way that we want them to, if they start cutting off those supply lines, it makes it more difficult to get resupplies in. And so we need to be moving that equipment, which means the stingers and so forth, in as quickly as possible. The concern that we've got is, is if we lose those supply lines, you may very well have Ukrainians that are fighting, that are standing their, their, their ground, but if they don't have the equipment necessary already in their hands when those supply lines get stretched, 
then it's going to be very tough for them to do as much damage as they are right now. So right now, we'd love to see more of the stingers. We'd love to see more of the javelins. We want more of the grenades, that, uh, the, the, the grenade launchers that we're talking about. And one thing that when we talk about air, aircraft, it's really important that these drones, uh, some from Turkey, some from the United States, some from some other countries, we try to get as many of those in as possible. Those have been extremely effective in taking out some of the Russian air defenses. And long term, we're going to have to take out as many of those as possible before uh, the Ukrainian Air Force is going to be able to fly again. Republican Senator Mike Rounds of South Dakota, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Coming up, they barely escaped Russia's terror in Ukraine, but now they're facing a new fight at the U.S.-Mexico border. Stay with us. And our world leader, the United Nations, says more than 3.2 million, 3.2 million Ukrainians have fled their country since Putin's brutal assault on the independent nation started just about three weeks ago. An estimated 90% of those who have fled are women and children. Two million have gone to Poland. Most have stayed there, but as CNN's Lucy Kafanov reports for us now, that leaves more than a million displaced and often traumatized Ukrainians. Some are waiting on America's doorstep, side by side with Russian dissenters, as the U.S. is beginning to reevaluate a pandemic-era rule that blocks asylum seekers coming from Mexico. At America's southern border, anguish and uncertainty for the war-weary. Kristina was in Kyiv when Russia unleashed terror from the skies. I just wake up from bomb. She fled, first to Poland, then France, then Mexico, unable to bring her parents or brother along. I just crying so much, just hugging so much and tell goodbye. And we don't know, maybe they, they don't look each other anymore in this life. Traumatized, shaken, waiting for a chance to apply for asylum in the U.S. Two, two weeks, weeks at the border, weeks. and you yeah. have not been able to cross. Yeah. Despite the fact that you're fleeing. Yeah, and or... here we are third, third time. Third time yeah. at the border. And we just try to go there. Sidgay yeah. Phoenix, his wife Yana, and their two little ones fled Kharkov as soon as the invasion began, before the Russians turned their home to rubble. They said they're really hoping to be able to cross. He says he wants to go to America. An unreachable dream for many. With the U.S. southern border largely closed off to asylum seekers for the past two years, thanks to a controversial Trump-era COVID health order known as Title 42. Shortly after we spoke, Christina and other Ukrainians were allowed to cross. But they weren't the only ones seeking refuge from Vladimir Putin's wrath. There is confusion at the border here in Tijuana. We saw some Ukrainians allowed to enter, including those that have been turned away several times. This group consists of mostly Russians. They have been here for days. Their fate remains uncertain. Katya Yadina and her two children came from St. Petersburg. Her husband was arrested for protesting the invasion hours after it was announced. He feared prison or forced conscription into the war. She caught the last Aeroflot flight to Mexico, hoping to gain refuge and safe haven in the U.S. You tried to cross. What did they tell you? She says they were promised entry, then told to wait. Six days later, they remain in limbo, no access to funds because of sanctions. A Department of Homeland Security memo obtained by CNN instructs Customs and Border Protection officers to consider exempting Ukrainians from Title 42. 
An agency spokesman said other vulnerable individuals could be accepted on a case-by-case basis, but no other nationality was singled out in the new guidance. They told us that there is some um, limitation. They called it Title 42. Because of it, we cannot come in. Agatha and her husband Ruslan were also part of Russia's opposition movement, having spent years organizing and protesting against Putin. One of Ruslan's arrests was captured on camera. He describes threatening visits to his home and surveillance by police. Were you scared for your life? But this, they tell me, may have gone too far. Their efforts to organize protests against the war, calling it anything but a special military operation, now illegal in Russia. We are also in a very bad situation. Once we return, we will be thrown to jail and anything can happen to us. And Jake, we've asked the Department of Homeland Security whether there will be an exception made for the Russians fleeing Putin's oppression. They said it's going to be decided on a case-by-case basis. But take a look behind me. A lot of these families are still here. Most of them are from Russia. Their numbers have grown. They have not been given the opportunity to even plead their case. And critics say this raises a bigger issue, that Title 42 is being used selectively for the U.S. to decide which groups of people, which humans, will be allowed to plead asylum. Lucy Kafanov in Tijuana, thank you so much for that report. Coming up next, how an American combat veteran is helping Ukrainian teachers, ballet dancers, and high school students who are getting ready for battle. Stay with us. In our world lead, Ukrainian teachers and dancers and high school students uprooted from their daily lives and preparing for battle on the front lines in Ukraine to protect their home country. CNN's Scott McLean joins a first aid class now in Lviv where a U.S. veteran with decades of war experience is arming Ukrainians with life-saving knowledge. This is the kind of lesson that few people want to have to teach and fewer want to have to use in real life. It's basic first aid for a community coming to grips with the reality of war. I'm afraid because we are not prepared. I am not a professional soldier, but I understand it is better to meet the enemy being prepared and with the right skills. Dr. Robert Lim is an American war veteran working with the Global Surgical and Medical Support Group. It's bringing medics, doctors and surgeons to Ukraine to train civilians. It seems fun now, but these scenarios may soon become reality. Now you're going to get shot. The civilian training held in a local gym attracts engineers, teachers, dancers, all kinds of professions and age groups, including high school students suddenly forced by the war to put their own plans on hold. I don't understand and know uh, when I will in future study, because now it's a hard time and uh, I don't know what can be tomorrow. Lim is teaching people battlefield survival skills, like how to apply a tourniquet or how to keep an injured person breathing. With 23 years of experience as an army surgeon, he is also training doctors to prepare for the type of wounds rarely seen in civilians during peacetime. If you're in New York City or London or another big city, most of the injuries are blunt. So it's a car accident or a fall or something like that. Whereas most of the injuries on the battlefield are going to be penetrating wounds that might injure an artery or a major vessel. All with a small fraction of the resources they're used to. Do what you can with what you've got. In many parts of Ukraine, medical supplies and facilities are getting harder to come by. 
And in the worst hit areas, many hospitals are now operating in basements, with only flashlights to avoid attracting Russian bombs. Dr. Tanya Boychuk is a dermatologist from Western Ukraine, one of dozens of medical professionals sharpening their skills for battle. In normal life, dermatologists do not provide first aid, do not stop bleeding, do not do tourniquets and punctures. With her day job on hold, she's planning to join the military. And she won't wait for the fighting to come to her. I plan to go to the war front. My close friends are at war now, and I want to be there too. Scott McLean, CNN, Lviv, Ukraine. And our th- thanks to Scott McLean in Lviv. U.S. history will be made next week. We're starting to see the Republican strategy for questioning Supreme Court nominee Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. What should you expect to see at her confirmation hearing? That's next. In our politics lead today, Monday starts a pivotal and quite consequential week for the Biden administration's domestic agenda. Confirmation hearings are set to begin for Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Biden's pick to replace the retiring Justice Breyer on the U.S. Supreme Court. Republicans are sharpening their lines of attack against the hearings, attempting to drum up controversy over past rulings, including her handling of sex crimes during her time as a judge. Let's discuss with our analysts and contributors. And Ashley, let me start with you, because Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri, he began pushing this week the suggestion that Judge Jackson, in his view, is overly sympathetic to sex offenders in her judicial rulings. He said she has, quote, a pattern of letting child porn offenders off the hook. Now, a CNN, uh, our CNN team reviewed uh, what he was saying, and that shows that Jackson mostly followed the common judicial sentencing practices in these kind of cases, and that Hawley seems to have taken some of her comments out of context. So what do you think this, cha- this challenge does to, to uh, her nomination? Is Hawley going to um, find supporters for what he's saying about her? I don't know many people that would think that a Supreme Court nominee would actually be sympathetic to sex offenders and that the president would actually nominate someone like that because Judge Jackson is not sympathetic to uh, sex offenders. She is so qualified that he's throwing spaghetti at the wall. And it's honestly typical Josh Hawley. I think he will be very performative during the hearing, as he usually is, to get a lot of screen time. But I don't think it will actually stick. I'm not sure if she will get bipartisan support, but I think she is even during some of the Obama nominations, one of the most qualified candidates that could potentially get some uh, Republican support, and she should. And we don't expect Josh Hawley, but I would just dismiss this claim because she's followed the law in many of her cases, not just in this issue. The question is certainly not whether or not she's followed the law. He brings up an interesting aspect of her judicial philosophy, right? Uh, Many are saying soft on crime, but the truth is, with her opinions and many of her comments and a lot of her actions, she has uh, suggested and, and represented the idea of downward departures for pedophiles, of all things. And what, that is that, is, what do you mean, downward departures? With regard to the sentencing guidelines. There's a range you can sentence someone to with, uh, when you're a sex crime offender or pedophile. Well, let's say she, it's seven to ten years. and she, she Right. She could go seek a downward departure closer to seven as opposed to ten, which is, which is within... Uh, her duty and her obligation to do so, but there's a question about seeking a downward departure for such criminals. Also, with regard to her support for uh, abortions, uh, pro-abortion issues, and and protecting 
the buffer zones at abortion clinics and representing Gitmo detainees. These are valid parts of her judicial record that are subject to scrutiny so, and a confirmation. So our review of our, our people who uh, cover the court and everything looked at this really carefully and said that a review of what she had done showed that she followed the sentencing guidelines, which people agreed need to be looked at generally. And so she didn't do anything out of the ordinary. And I think this is a question of throwing the spaghetti against the wall. Do you just want to make a huge deal about how she's soft? You know, she's soft on crime. Because don't forget, you have four potential Republican presidential candidates sitting on this committee. And the soft on crime for the Democrats seems to be something they're going to use all over. It's something Donald Trump liked to use. It's something Republicans like to use. And if they can portray her as somebody, oh, she she represented, uh, you know, detainees at Gitmo. Well, can you never have anyone who is a public defender assigned a client yeah. represent someone? Well, and the, the other thing, when, when the White House was asked about this, Saki, Jen Saki, the White House press secretary, suggested that Hawley has no ground to talk on, uh, to speak on this because uh, he refused to say whether he would vote for Roy Moore, who was the Republican Senate candidate um, from Alabama who had been accused of uh, sexually harassing uh, underage girls. Um, I don't know that that really is responsive. It's certainly politically responsive, yeah. but, it, but if one is, is engaging in the kind of scrutiny of somebody's record, uh, they're going to have to have more of a response, I think. Right. And I think this, what this uh, sort of out of the out of the blue comments by what Senator Senator Josh Hawley has indicated is it shows just what Judge Jackson is in for in her confirmation hearing to the extent that there has been kind of one common thread that Senate Republicans have discussed when it comes to Judge Jackson. It is the issue of crime. Several Republicans have pointed to her service as a federal public uh, public defender, like we said, her representation of Gitmo detainees. I will point out, though, I talked to Senator John. Kennedy, one of the Republicans on that committee, he told me he's actually very uncomfortable with those attacks because he says we've like attorneys have always represented people that we may not even like that. But that is our job to provide our clients counsel. So there is some hesitation with Republicans on that committee. But and they haven't had a defender on the court since Thurgood Marshall. Right. And she would actually be the first federal public defender on the court. So she's making a little bit of history there. Should she be confirmed? So I think that, you know, the White House, Judge Jackson will take the weekend and take uh, take through Monday when the confirmation hearings start to really prepare for the answers because we know, obviously, Josh Hawley will bring it up. Um, an aide to Senator Marsha Blackburn tells me she will bring it up. Senator Mike Lee has uh, indicated that um, he would raise this issue as well. And I'm told that um, all the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee are very well aware of this research and could certainly bring it up themselves. And I think well, it's a, what we will see is that McConnell has really, I think, set the table for what we will expect to see, a confirmation process of dignity and respect due to her uh, impeccable judicial record. And she has a tremendous record of accomplishments professionally and personally. And I don't expect to see any way, shape or form uh, character assassinations like we've seen in the past. This will be about her record and scrutinizing her judicial record is valid for a lifetime appointment. Well, I, I just think, you know, conservatives and republic and liberals have supported her the fraternal order of police usually don't endorse people who are technically soft on crime and they were out the gate i think on the second 
uh, day of her nomination. Uh, The major city chiefs, the sheriffs, the Cato Institute came out today in support of Judge Jackson. I mean, she definitely has. You don't have to agree with her on all the issues, but her uh, integrity on how she applies the law, I think, is pretty airtight. And, and, you know, Mitch McConnell came out and said, look, she's probably going to get confirmed. You need just 51 votes. So he sort of he said it. And so the question is, how far do Republicans want to go? Do they all agree how far they want to go? The public right now is focused on a lot of other things, including, of course, Ukraine, including their pocketbooks. Mm -hmm. They're worried about their future. They're worried about their families. And so the question is, how do Republicans do this? I don't think they all agree on what their strategy right. ought to be. And I can tell you, definitely Republicans do not agree on how right. far they should go. Right. But I think broadly Republicans have acknowledged that they're most likely going to lose the confirmation battle. Mm-hmm. Obviously, barring some major catastrophe on the White House's end, she will be confirmed most likely in early April. In a bipartisan so, way, right? Uh, likely, yeah. Susan Collins um, has voted for every su- Supreme Court justice except for one, so she really wants to get to yes if possible. Mm-hmm. But for some Republicans, it's all about kind of making the political case sort of make, as one advisor told me, they right now it's a political win for Democrats. They want to make it at least a political wash. All right. Thanks to all. Have a great weekend. What's as tall as a 32 story skyscraper, weighs more than five million pounds and takes eight hours to gas up. That's next. <laughs> Our out-of-this-worldly is still firmly planted on the ground for now. NASA's brand-new moon rocket arrived at its launch pad earlier today after a nearly 11-hour trip from the Assembly Building in Florida. The SLS rocket, that's NASA speak for Space space Launch System, is as tall as a 32-story skyscraper. In several weeks, that big rocket will be fueled up, and NASA will count down to T-minus 10 seconds, and then without the engines ever starting, the fuel will be drained out and the rocket will be rolled back to the assembly building for more inspections. Now, if all goes well, the next rollout will actually be for a trip to the moon this summer, but without any people on board. Be sure to tune into this Sunday's State of the Union. I'll be talking to the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, retired General David Petraeus, plus Polish Ambassador to the United States, Marek Magiarowski and Estonian Prime Minister Kaya Kallas. It's live at 9 a.m. at noon Eastern this Sunday. Until then, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN. You can listen to our podcast wherever you get podcasts. Our coverage now continues with one Mr. Wiff Blitzer in the Situation Room. Thanks for watching. I'll see you Sunday morning. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.